Hello, and welcome to the podcast on consciousness and the brain with Bernard Bars. Open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We're here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. In this episode, we explore the science of willpower and self-control with our special guest, one of the world's most prolific and influential psychologists, Professor Roy Baumeister. Roy is a social psychologist who explores how we think about the self and why we feel and act the way we do. He is especially known for his work on the subjects of willpower, self-control, ego depletion, and the dark side of self-esteem, and how they relate to human morality and success. He has published over 700 scientific works, including over 40 books. In his New York Times bestselling book, titled Willpower, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength with science writer John Tierney, Roy wrote, When you pick your battles, look beyond the immediate challenges and put your life in perspective. Are you where you want to be? What could be better? The unconscious is asking the conscious mind to make a plan. <laughs> That's beautiful wisdom. Welcome, Roy. We are so delighted you could join us. Oh, thank you, Natalie. I'm happy to be here, and uh, it's always a treat to talk to Bernie Byers. <laughs> Wonderful. Bernie is really looking forward to talking with you also. Hi, Bernie. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Uh, hi, Roy in particular, and welcome. Roy Baumeister is a kind of renaissance man in the field of social and personality psychology and really uh, more broadly in what you might call fundamental psychology uh, having to do with questions like consciousness and willpower and uh, these are very ancient and very important questions that are very very real his publications uh, have received literally hundreds of thousands of scientific citations, and he has had great influence in science at large, as well as in applied popular psychology. And so I really want to ask uh, Roy, you know, given that you can't cover everything, just a few hundred citations and uh, just a few hundred of your papers in our discussion today. So I, I'm just going to ask you, what are you most excited about these days? All right. Uh, these days, uh, three projects have uh, really been occupying me. There's, uh, I'm writing a book on, on scientific theory of free will, which uh, pulled together the many things we know, including very much the global workspace. The other two projects is one on trying to understand political hostility, understanding what's going on, why are the left and the right falling afoul of each other, and 
trying to relate it to basic principles and changing in the modern world. And then uh, psychology is going through this uh, replication thing. So I uh, I, I read over all the uh, multi-lab replications in social psychology, and we have a review article. They they seem to work especially badly uh, in social psychology, and I think there's some reasons for that, but we really needed to read them all and pull all that together and try to understand what's what's troubling the field. Yeah, that's all really important and interesting, and I, I really want to get back to those those topics if we can, because there's so much. So let's just go ahead then. Okay. Roy has received many awards, and justifiably, but my favorite example of his awards is the William James Award from the Society of Psychological Science uh, about 10 years ago, and the reason why that is a favorite for me is that William James is also my favorite historical figure in psychology. I just wanted to mention that award especially. Uh, It is impossible to summarize all of Roy's contributions in psychology. Uh, I'm going to ask a few questions, and then I believe we will take off spontaneously. Is subjective willpower really like a muscle? Uh, The muscle analogy uh, has held up pretty well over uh, the 20 or 30 years I've been doing the research on that. I think I mentioned a couple of minutes ago when we started, it was back during the the height of the cognitive revolution and everybody was thinking of the the brain as a little computer and all the theories were about uh, information processing. And so energy was not really a factor. In fact, I used to joke, uh, energy models were so out of fashion, we weren't even against them (laughs) anymore. And so bringing in an energy model that uh, willpower, there is really some kind of power there, at least metaphorically, that gets used up. That was kind of radical at the time. Now, uh, as as you commented, the energy models are now more back in fashion, partly due to to the influx of biological thinking into psychology because you know, biology, uh, life is, a, is an energy process itself. But just to say the difference, if you think of the brain as a little computer, then if you have the module up and running, it should make things go faster. It improves the efficiency of how the machine goes. And, and so by that, applying that to self-control, if we have people already engaging self-control in one task, and then we give them a different self-control task, they should do better because the mind already has loaded the self-control program, so to speak. Uh, But we consistently found the opposite, uh, that after one uh, exertion of self-control, if there's a a demand for another one, they do worse on that, uh, which is more in line with the idea that some energy uh, was used up. And the analogy of a muscle is good, that uh, when you exert a muscle, uh, then it gets tired. And so on the next task that comes along often will not do uh, as as well, will not perform as well when it's tired. Um, we found other things uh, with the muscle analogy too. It, it turns out the ego depletion effect where self-control gets worse and the physical muscle effects, they're not really that you're out of energy, which was our sort of naive first assumption, uh, but rather the the mind, the brain knows to conserve energy. So it's saving it up. And I've recently seen some data with physical muscles that, uh, you know, they'll bring someone in and test their muscular exertion and have them do stuff. And so at the end of the 
session, their muscle is tired, but they can still exert just as much power as they did when they first came in, if you give them a good reason to. And it was the same with self-control. Yes, the mind starts conserving willpower after it uh, after it exerts some, but if something important came along, it's really capable of doing it. And then there's one more parallel to the muscle analogy. When you exercise regularly, you get stronger. This seemed a little far-fetched to me, whether this would apply with self-control. But uh, we tried it, and yes, having people do self-control exercises for a couple of weeks uh, made them do better on lab tests of self-control. Even we picked tests that are very different from the exercise. Uh, so like the first uh, uh, exercise uh, that worked, we had people work on their posture. You see, all day, whenever you think of it, sit up straight, stand up straight. And they did that for two weeks, and then we tested their self-control on with things that had nothing to do with posture. You know, one of the classic lab tests is how long can you hold your hand in ice water, or how long can you squeeze a hand grip, or how do you how long do you keep trying at a difficult puzzle before you give up? Those are a variety of of measures, and 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 yes, on all those things, having strengthened your willpower muscle, so to speak, by exercise, they did better. Uh, in the lab test uh, afterward. Right. I have to tell you, by the way, that when I first ran across your work, I didn't believe a word of it. <laughs> and then I did, of course, because you kept on finding the evidence. So uh, I changed my mind, which is the right thing for scholars to do when they run into evidence that they didn't Good. expect there to be. Uh, so I want to thank you for that. And also, one of the things that strikes me in connection with the energy notion is the uh, relationship between willpower and mental depletion and glucose, which is obviously the fuel for the brain. Uh, would you just touch on that? Yes. Well, this was a this was a surprise to us. It uh, uh, it started a bit by accident. Uh, Matt Galliott was a graduate student working with me then, and he came in one day and said, well, if resisting temptation depletes your willpower, makes you weaker, would indulging temptation make you stronger? <laughs> uh, and I said, well, I didn't think it would work that way, but it was worth a try. I said we'd be really popular uh, if it did work. Right. You were calling it the Mardi Gras effect the way you go to Mardi Gras and have a wild party for a few days and then get ready for Lent when you're, uh, you know, right. abstain from things. So uh, we tried it. I said, you know, go ahead, run the study, see what happens. So we gave people ice cream in between depleting them. Oh, really? Uh, between depleting them and testing their self-control afterwards. Uh, and we had a control group where they just sort of read boring magazines and another one where they ate something that didn't taste good because we wanted to see if there's any effect of eating. Right. So uh, I sort of forgot about this. And then uh, Matt came into the office one day looking at his shoes the way they do, you know. I said, well, that study didn't really work. And I said, well, I, I didn't have a lot of expectations for it. But so the ice cream didn't uh, improve their self-control afterwards. He said, oh, actually, the ice cream did. It wiped out the depletion effect. Uh, but the thing is, so did the unpleasant tasting food. So, oh, really? So it wasn't a, a pleasure. Uh, and so he was all disappointed. But I said, well, well, no, maybe that's interesting. We're talking about energy as a uh, willpower. We've been talking about it metaphorically, but maybe it's tied in. Obviously, it wasn't the pleasure. 
Uh, maybe it was the calories. So he went over to the library and uh, started reading up about uh, glucose and all these things that we had no idea about. I never uh, looked into any of that. And sure enough, nutritionists had already found that people who are in states of low glucose, uh, they behave badly, they perform worse, they think worse. They didn't really have any grand theory about it, but they found it in multiple contexts. Uh, there are even studies like with school children where they tell them all to come to school without having breakfast. And then randomly they give half the kids breakfast oh, and, really? the, and the other half not. So yeah. very nicely controlled. And yeah. sure enough, the kids who got breakfast, they behave better and they learn better. Uh, and, oh. then at 10, and then at 10 o'clock when Navy gets a snack uh, for everybody, then the, the differences vanish. Uh, um, that's beautiful. Yeah. And there are all kinds of things. Juvenile delinquents have, uh, you know, who are just arrested, show lower levels of blood glucose, which... Really? been poor self-control is what caused them to commit the crime and got them arrested uh so we ran a, a bunch of studies on that and we had several findings uh the one did not replicate very well which was that levels of glucose would go down from before to after a lab act of self-control sometimes that happens but sometimes the you know the body pulls out more glucose and all that so that one I don't really have found it but but we got the same finding as the nutritionists had found which is when people are in a state of low blood glucose, their self-control is, is poorer. Now, to get quibbly about this, sure. uh, you obviously looked at whether the glucose goes up and down in, in healthy people, right? Right, you don't, yeah. You don't have to be diabetic. But if you work within that normal range, and it goes up and it goes down, you can measure that. So on the down curve, did you find that on, on this kind of very normal uh, swing that people that people had the problem with mental effort? Yeah, mental effort tasks were worse, as I as I recall. People did worse when they had lower uh, lower levels of blood glucose. We didn't do as much of that kind of thing because of, uh, again, there was already that body of work from nutrition research. But we focused on more was the third where is we give people a dose of glucose, which we'd kind of done in the ice cream study. What we switched to that seemed to be better and more reliable uh, was lemonade. We were in, in Florida then, and it was hot. And you can mix lemonade with sugar or with a diet sweetener, Splenda, uh, Equal or whatever. And it tastes good to people. They're glad to have it. Uh, they can't really tell the difference. You can be complete double blind, you know, mix the drinks in the morning. The experimenter doesn't know. The research subject doesn't know. But, of course, sugar gives you a big dose of glucose, and uh, the diet sweetener doesn't. And uh, that's worked for us just about every study, uh, at least that they told me about, <laughs> uh, that uh, that they they run, that it, it wipes out the depletion effect. You know, getting a dose of, uh, of glucose seems to make people better able to do mental effort and self-control and, and, and things like that. Well, that's very, very interesting. And obviously, in terms of brain energy, that turns into a very plausible hypothesis, doesn't it? Yeah, the brain, as you know, is a huge user of energy. It, it consumes like a fifth to a fourth of the body's total energy, even though it's what, only 2% of the, of the body mass. So yeah, it's a very expensive organ. And it uses glucose all the time. Uh, it's, it's, it's energy supply. Uh, I understand this is beyond my expertise. I'm a, remember, I'm a social behavior kind of person. But uh, that 
the brain scans work by detecting energy being consumed, like essentially glucose being burned. Right. Uh, fMRI, that kind of thing. Right. And so it uh, it has its own monitors for its glucose supply. It's 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 not going to run out. Certainly not in modern college students. So our initial assumption that like the brain was running out of fuel after a self control exercise, that's not plausible. But but conserving is very plausible. Uh, and and someone recently came up with a a real plausible alternative theory, uh, which is uh, to protect the nerves. You mentioned diabetics. Uh, some of them have, you know, lose a feeling in their toes and fingers because running high glucose all the time eventually damages the nerves. And okay, it's bad enough to have that in your toes, but when your brain to have the the brain cells burn out from overheating, that would be a problem. And so that could explain why after you exert self control, the the brain has an impulse to uh, let that part of the brain cool off uh, and so it doesn't want to do that again unless you know there's something really important at stake yeah that's very interesting so this is a kind of well-engineered system it's not really simple in the sense that you kick up the fuel and then use it up and nothing else happens uh, but it has kind of homeostatic uh, backups uh, yes. when oh, you do run out there are, these, there are these people in uh, at Northwestern did these clever studies where they had people take the glucose drink in their mouth and swish it around and spit it out. Oh, and that oh. also seemed to wipe out the the uh, uh, the depletion effect. Really? Uh, which they said, okay, well, you're not you know you're not getting any more energy in, but some of the glucose is processed in the mouth and gets into the bloodstream, and that's even though the quantity is small, it's usually a signal. I mean, what's in your mouth is coming in. So, so that makes it all right to expend more energy uh, if the brain is trying to conserve. It says, "Well, I don't oh, have to oh, conserve so wait, anymore." So, wait, we're getting we're giving the brain a signal just by putting glucose in the mouth. Is that right? Right. It seem it seems to work like that. I sort of think of it as, uh, you know, people say, "Well, I'm getting paid on Friday, so Thursday I can go out and spend a little extra money uh -huh. because uh, more is coming in." Right. So. The glucose in the mouth will sort of reassure that it's it's okay to uh, exert more self control. It doesn't fit as well with the uh, the overheating brain theory. Sorry, the overheating brain. Yeah, the one I mentioned, like the diabetics, that uh, that the reason for the depletion effect is that the brain wants to let the the neurons cool off rather than keeping. Oh, oh, oh I see. I see. You could say, well, it'd be adaptive uh, since self control is so beneficial in so many ways it'd be adaptive just to keep a lot of glucose there all, all the time and keep your your self-control operating at a high level which people don't do yeah uh, but as you were saying the downside of having high blood sugar is of course that you do damage right uh, so yeah. you don't want to do too much of that right that's why i said the the one about rinsing stuff in your mouth that wiping out the effect that doesn't fit the damage theory oh. uh, uh, as well, uh, but you know it's. I don't consider that a huge, a huge convincing point. No, uh, I've spent uh, quite a few years uh, working with people in biology, and sort of picked up things uh, by the side of the road, 
And obviously, there's any number of homeostatic feedback loops to protect the nerves in the body. And it's complicated, um, as far as I would think, yes. Yes, yeah. Okay, very good. So uh, the question, is subjective willpower really like a muscle? And I guess the answer is yes, in a lot of ways. Is that? Yes, I would say that, yes, in a lot of ways. It it shows the same patterns of getting tired, of getting stronger with exercise, conserving energy after you've expended some. I mean, an athlete running a long distance doesn't run full blast until he's exhausted and then just collapse, but rather you pace yourself. Uh, So conserving energy is there in the physical muscle system as well. And So there's kind of a self-regulation aspect to all this. Yes, yes, yes. Right. For long-distance runners uh, and so on, people who have to do effortful things uh, for hours. Right. And it's a little bit better uh, to... You know, pop some glucose every once in a while, or, or whatever, uh, whatever seems to work. And one of the very interesting things about your work is that there's all kinds of psychological factors that also uh, get into that system, which is should not be a surprise, but it sure is a surprise to people like me. So I also want to ask you about that. the The term ego depletion. Uh, is also interesting, and as you know, of course, it's also very provocative to skeptics. And so why did you pick uh, such a uh, Freudian term, uh, like ego depletion? Again, when we were doing this, it was everything was cognitive and information. Uh, But given the importance of self-control, I thought, well, this suggests that an important part of the self is some kind of energy. So I wanted to see where did we find this in the history of psychological theories. And nobody had much talked about energy as part of the self since Freud. But Freud had said, now we weren't buying the rest of his model uh, necessarily, but uh, he did say that the, the self, the ego was kind of his term for it, consisted partly of energy. And he was rather vague about what it did and where it came from, other instincts and Use sublimation and all that, which uh, I don't, I don't think is correct. But nevertheless, he was a pioneer. So I, I said, okay, well, let's use Freud's term as a kind of an homage. He had at least uh, said there was energy uh, as part of it, and uh, it certainly did set us apart from the, the information processing models that the, the self is some kind of schema or or program. I'm actually a, a secret fan of Freud on, on a lot of issues. Yeah, me too. He, he inspired me to go into psychology in the first place. I was Oh, studying, really? I was studying philosophy uh, and uh, my parents said, well, we're not going to pay a Princeton tuition for a philosophy major because there's uh-huh. no money in that. And it had just happened that I was like reading moral psychology and stuff and I happened across one of Freud's books where he approached the problem of right and wrong not by thinking carefully about the concepts the way a philosopher would, but by looking how do children actually learn right and wrong. And he went back to the anthropology literature of, of the time and looked at what are the earliest uh, morals that society have. And I thought, well, this is fascinating. You can use scientific data to address these philosophical questions. Well, interesting. Uh, so he kind of inspired me, and I, I went into uh, 
psychology on that basis. Uh, my, my parents weren't too crazy about psychology either, but uh, <laughs> uh, my father, uh, I remember his first his first line was, "You'd be wasting your brain." Yeah. Going into psychology, but then he he did some checking, and he, he was working for uh, one of the big oil companies, and uh, there were psychologists there who earned more money than he did. Uh huh. So he said, "All right, I guess you can make a living in psychology." Good. So I mean, it was a funny twist. How much industrial psychologists earned in the 1970s had no bearing on anything in my career, uh, except that that's what made my parents say, "Okay, you, you can major in that. We'll pay for that." Yeah, and uh, and one of the Possible implications, I don't know, of course, is that a lot of your work has had practical implications. So there's actually good advice coming out of this. Uh, yes, I, I don't do as much on that side of things, but I'm interested in that. And I know have like Mark Muraven, who ran the first ego depletion studies in our lab that and, uh, and worked. He went on to uh, show the effects of building self-control with exercise on uh, he got success with quitting smoking. Uh, he oh, also really? Problem that's, that's a tough one. That is. That's uh, we were joking. It's the graveyard of psychological theories because yeah. nothing works. If I recall correctly, he you know over a couple of months he tripled the success rate, which is like from five percent to fifteen percent. So uh-huh. it's, it's not a magic bullet. Uh, but no, at least but having, significant uh, given the uh, the enormous difficulty, right? Yeah, yeah. Of uh, teaching people to to constrain that once they're habituated to it. Yes, I think there are more more clinical applications, and I've been talking to some colleagues overseas about a a free will therapy. As you know, one of my my colleagues there says, uh, she has patients who just don't want to make any decisions, don't want to do anything, just want to be totally passive. Right. And so you want to get them to more take control of their lives and even to help them recover from their their problems. They have to uh, take charge and, and institute the changes. That happens with depression fairly often. Is that correct? Yes, I think so. Yes, where uh, you don't have any urge and you don't want to do anything. And, and there could be anxiety and other things too. You don't want to make a choice because you might be wrong. Uh, you don't want to take the responsibility for those things, and uh, you, know, you want to be passive. There's the new sort of victim uh, mentality spreading through the culture. You know, I'm not responsible for my life. Other people did things to me. So, yes, I think that's uh, an, an intriguing problem with, with uh, again, a fair amount of potential. Uh, the, the ego depletion stuff is spread. There are articles looking at it in all sorts of applied settings now i just saw one on accounting because you know the uh, accountants there's a very busy season and uh-huh. you know they have to be careful not to make mistakes and well they get they get depleted probably that's here we are in march i'm, I'm guessing april <laughs> with an income taxes is a stressful season for them i've right. seen ones about uh health uh, professionals uh, their decision making gets more casual so a lot of patients come in and want antibiotics or whatever. And, you know, there's a norm you shouldn't overprescribe it. But later in the day when they're more tired and depleted, they're more likely to say, okay, sure, I'll give you whatever you want. Yep. Uh, they also catch them not washing their hands uh, as regularly. You're supposed to wash your hands between every uh, every. We're talking patient. about doctors here. Right, yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, doctors and nurses on the hand washing, I, I recall. Right, right. Um, sports, uh, the sports psychologists are finding... Uh, uh, that too, they have 
a couple of recent studies where they have people do the the Stroop task, which is a laboratory self-control task, right? Uh, where you have to override a response, uh, and they they do that so they're mentally tired, but physically it doesn't take any exertion. But then they go outside and you know, play soccer or basketball or something, and there are more penalties and missed shots uh, and uh, other sorts of things. So if I'm a subject in your experiment and you're showing me colored words, uh, words in colored letters, and rather than read the word, you're forcing me to label the color. Right. So I have to say red or blue or whatever, uh, rather than saying Roy Baumeister. So rather than aiming at the meaning, I'm doing something that's kind of meaningless, that gets in the way. Uh, like color naming, yes, well, and then I go outside and, and, and play basketball, and because I've just had a frustrating experience, I do worse? Uh, that's right, yes. The Stroop task, what, what made that such a creative methodological innovation when uh, Stroop came up with it back in the 30s or whatever, is he would show the word blue printed in red. So you read blue, and the mind automatically thinks blue, but you have to override that response and say red. So the overriding. So there's a little inner conflict uh, yeah. going on there. Yeah. And the self control to override the automatic response and uh, make a different response. I think some people were using it to, uh, to look for Russian spies uh, as they would do it in Russian. And if you don't, you don't speak Russian, um, there's no interference. So it's easy to say red when you see the whatever the Russian uh, word is yes. in red. Uh, of course, if you just say, "Well, I took Russian in high school," that would be an excuse. But still, it was uh, the military had some interest in that as a, a possible way of doing it. <laughs> One of my colleagues did the Stroop task with his kids. He said, "Oh, his two-year-old." Had, he said, "Oh, this is easy," <laughs> but he, he doesn't read, of course. Right. Uh, so he doesn't have the automatic response that he has to override. Right. So, uh, so that's really interesting. All kinds of things obviously become automatic over time. Right. Uh, and children learn to talk maybe at the end of the first year, something like that. And uh, saying mommy uh, after that point, uh, although mommy is, is, is an exceptional word, I think, but saying uh, hello, let's say, uh, might be over practiced and uh, that drops out of consciousness, which is my particular angle on that kind of thing. Uh, that in turn, if I follow your train of thought, uh, results in less mobilization of brain activity. If maybe that's a way of saying it, it could be just a metaphor. It could be real. Um, I didn't didn't quite follow that all, all together. The automatization is is uh, is clear. Yes, you first learn something. I mean, saying hello comes very early, but think of learning to play the piano or swing a tennis racket or something. You know, at first you pay attention to every every little thing and how you hold your hands and what each finger does. But as you develop the skill, it becomes more automatic. And so the piano player can think about the music or the improvisation or whatever. The tennis player can shift to strategy and how do I move my opponent around? It doesn't have to think about where to put your feet and how to hold the racket and all those things. Uh, indeed, early in my career, what I stumbled on is that when people choke under pressure, it's because consciousness intrudes back into this automatic process. I remember watching a guy 
you drop a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl, you know, easy pass right in his right in his hands. I thought, come on, he's practiced that a thousand times right. or more. Uh, he could practically do it in his sleep. Well, not really, but that's what we say. Uh, and yet, here's the the most important time. Uh, but it's because millions of people are watching. This is the important one, and you know, the, the conscious mind has the attitude. Well, if it's important, let's pay more attention to it. Yep. And, and it tries to inter- take over again, but no, it's better to do <laughs> to do it by automatic pilot when you have right. a, a fancy skill like that. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I did that research with sort of laboratory sports games and stuff. But the artists said the same thing that you know you practice a piano piece till you have it down perfect and you can play it automatically. But then you get up there with uh, uh, you know, a thousand people watching, and suddenly you make mistakes. Right, even the we used to have typists, you know, who typed manuscripts. Now people mostly do their own things, but typists said the same thing. You get really skilled at typing, but uh, if you were out of correction fluid or whatever, so you couldn't make any more mistakes, oh, suddenly you started making more mistakes. Oh, really? So the huge range from football to typing to all kinds of other things, and that's really important. I think there's actually very, very good evidence from uh, Richard Ayer, I believe that's higher, uh, is the correct name, on uh, uh, metabolic activity in the brain after practice and before practice. And after practice, uh, you can actually see the metabolic activity, or rather you don't see the metabolic activity afterwards because there isn't that much of it Hmm. uh, needed to do, you know, tiddlywinks or whatever it is that you've practiced for hundreds and hundreds of hours. So that's really interesting. So, uh, and here's a good question that I want to ask you also, and it's very relevant here. Uh, What about the effect of habits and self-awareness, which you have just described, but maybe you would tell us a generalized finding? Okay, well, habits and self-awareness are two separate questions, but they're both highly relevant. Habits take over. Uh, when your willpower is depleted, um, the automatic processes continue. It's it's the it's the controlled processes that uh, that deteriorate. Uh, so, so the word "controlled" kind of means voluntarily controlled. Yes, it's we're talking about deliberate voluntary control. But the more you know, the mind is designed, and I think it's because. These control processes take energy and deplete uh, the ego that uh, the brain and mind evolved to make things become automatic uh, over time with practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you do the same thing. Uh, yeah, Wendy Wood and uh, her, her colleague Neil uh, have had several great papers on this. When you're learning a new skill, there's lots of attention, lots of self-awareness, lots of control, also lots of emotion. When it becomes a habit, all those things go away, and it just sort of executes much more smoothly. We, we've there's a big change for me in my thinking about self-control that came out of we, we developed this uh, scale to measure trait self-control, sort of personality, psychology, uh, loyalty. So. You know, we can all say some of our friends have better self-control than others. And I mean, the test works pretty well. Uh, so some of my colleagues put together a, a review article uh, on that uh, and looked at all the effects. And there are a lot of positive effects. But when they 
throwed it into the automatic and controlled processes, it seemed if the prediction was obvious that it should be the controlled things that uh, self-control predicts, but it wasn't. It was the automatic ones. And uh, they were completely stumped by that. And they said, what, what does this mean? How can we interpret it? So I always go back and look closely at the data when I'm stumped. So I said, let's go back and see exactly what these things were. And they said, oh, it was habits. And so what we gradually learned is that people with good self-control, they use it to, to break bad habits and form good habits. So their daily life runs very smoothly uh, on automatic pilot. You know, we think of self-control of, you know, the heroic act with Ulysses on the deck uh, struggling against uh, the temptation to steer the ship over to hear the sirens or, uh, you know, a married person strongly tempted to go to bed with someone else and heroically saying, no, no, I promised I can't do that. Or, or uh, you know, somebody quitting smoking or alcohol and, and this we think of those heroic moments and well there are a few of those but really what makes you have good self-control is you use it to organize your life so it runs smoothly on automatic pilot uh, uh, again break bad habits and form uh, form good habits yes that's very interesting and of course you and I would know that uh, William James wrote a very famous chapter on habit that everybody used to know but probably nobody knows these days, which is extremely unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. But you get a chance to rediscover and discover new things, of course, uh, about habit. Really, really important stuff. Great. Okay. And self-awareness you have talked about in, in terms of the possibility of interference between kind of excessive self-awareness when you're going to score that final touchdown and you think too much about your legs and suddenly you're on the ground and rolling and you've lost the ball. Yes. So that's also, I think, a, a kind of experience that many people have. I was also thinking, by the way, that there must be a reason why I keep on snacking uh, when I'm working hard at the computer. Uh, it can't be my muscular output, I assume. So it's probably keeping my brain happy. But I, if, if I exercised uh, a, a better set of uh, habits, of course, I wouldn't have to risk making myself fatter. <laughs> uh, yes. Exercise is a, is a good example, actually. If you, uh, I was called once to, to speak at an exercise psychology conference, and so I was happy to do it. But I sort of asked them, why am I here? I haven't done anything. I thought it was for the choking under pressure work that I had done long ago. Yeah. But they said no, that they were trying to increase people's exercise activities. And so they started with Bandura's idea of self-efficacy, that they would give people control and have them make decisions. And you know, come to the gym and then you can do this first or that first or whatever. And they said that didn't work at all. People didn't want to do it. Uh, it seemed it took them enough self-control to get them to the gym, get themselves to the gym. Right. And then they just wanted to be told, get on here, the treadmill, and run for 10 minutes. Or they just wanted everything laid out for them. They didn't want to have to make decisions, which then they they came around to, to, to us, to ego depletion. If self-control is limited, use it to get yourself uh, to the gym. You know, now for me, I, I figured out early on that exercise is one of the keys to living a long, healthy life. Uh, so 
you know, and they say you're supposed to do different exercises and so on. But the easiest thing to continue is just every day around four o'clock, you know, uh, I stop. I don't have to question it. I don't have to decide do I exercise today. Or not. It's just a habit part of your daily routine and it doesn't take a struggle. Starting exercise does because you're forming a new habit. You know, get yourself. What are you going to wear? And you're going to go out and jog and how far do you do? And all these things. Uh, that you'll struggle with at first, but form the habit uh, and you do it. And then it, it, it happens without all this willpower exertion and all this stuff. And so anyway, that seems to be the secret of what the uh, to have the people with good self-control does. There's an interesting side effect on this. The, we had questions of, okay, we can sort people into good and bad self-control based on their personality trait. And then we can deplete them in the laboratory, which is a state. Uh, so, who has the bigger ego depletion effect? Is it the people with high self-control because they have farther to fall? Or is it the people who low with low self-control who are sort of on the borderline? We did quite a few studies, including that. As, and there was just no difference over and over. We found the same. as Somebody just did a giant multi-site uh, thing. And they found the same. No, no, no difference, higher low self-control. Uh, the one exception was... I had a beeper study, you know, where people go around their days and we beep them. We had this little measure for our, whether they're feeling depleted or not. Right. And there, low self-control, people reported it a lot more. So you always worry when the lab and... Tell me that one more time. People with low self-control are much more likely to report feeling seriously depleted. Oh, really? Uh, than people with high self-control. So well, you worry when the lab doesn't match the real world. But what you realize is in the lab... Everybody does the same task. Right. And so it depletes them to the same amount. But in life, people with low self-control have much more screwed up lives. Uh -huh. They have a lot more problems to deal with. So they don't pay their bill and the electricity gets shut off or the cable is shut off and then they have to deal with that. Or they say things, they get mad at their partner and say things they don't mean and then they have a big fight and then they're sleeping on the couch or whatever and then they have to patch that up. Or, you know, they things are supposed to be in by a deadline and they miss the deadline. So that, that's why they're a lot more depleted in daily life, even though the lab findings consistently showed everybody gets depleted to the same amount if you do the same task. Uh, but it's a much more formidable life. People with good self-control, like I said, they get their lives organized, do right. things on time, develop good work habits and study habits and all those things. And so... Uh, then life goes much more smoothly without uh, exerting, you know, without these heroic Yes, so, so this is also called uh, trait conscientiousness in personality science. And, of course, that's right next door to your work. Uh, social psychology and personality seem to be very close cousins. Yes, yes. Conscientiousness is one of the big five traits, so it combines a lot of others, but... I think self-control is the major part of it. There's an overlap. There are a couple other things. High conscientious people are more traditional-oriented, uh, and uh, I guess they, they tend to believe more in hard work, which is some, you know, maybe a self-control thing there too. But yes, conscientiousness is the uh, uh, is the, the term from the Big Five. You know, uh, I'm very interested in, in the Big Five, for obvious reasons. It turns out to be really, really important uh, in people's lives, uh, of course. And then the question comes up, people who are low in conscientiousness and who have more troubled lives, 
less predictable lives, perhaps, why did that trait evolve in human evolution, assuming that it did? I, well, you can say one answer is that uh, human evolution made more self-control, but not everyone benefits to the same degree. Uh, I assume the positive part was adap adapting, uh, given that most animals don't have nearly as much self-control uh, as humans. They're not nearly as able to project into the future. And uh, So self-control is a distinctive, is a species-specific trait. Yes, or almost. You know, you, you can teach your dog a few rules, like, don't get up on the sofa uh, and you come home and the dog is on the floor, although the sofa is warm. <laughs> what it uh -huh. learns is, uh, oh. uh, is not to get on the sofa when you're around. Right. Uh, but it still can exert, you know, some things like that. And I'm guessing the earliest self-control evolution uh, was in a social group where the alpha male eats first because hungry animal seeing food is going to eat it, right? That's That's part of right. what the brain evolved to make sure. But it learns that if you eat out of turn, the, the alpha male is going to beat you up. Uh, and so you learn to wait your turn there. That right. might be one of the earliest self-controls, but nothing like, you know, long-term retirement planning and other things. Right. Humans do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a meme out there on the web that I keep on seeing, and I keep on being slightly annoyed by it, actually. And that's the question, is free will an illusion? Apparently, there are millions of web citations on Google that make the claim that free will is an illusion. And of course, I have my doubts about that, but I don't have evidence for my doubts, uh, whereas you do. So uh, what would you say? All right. Um, well, I've talked to a lot of scientists who don't believe in free will and to a lot who do. And I mostly agree with both of them because they're not talking about the same thing. Uh, so the, the skeptics think free will means that the soul comes in and causes behavior uh, or that it bypasses the brain and there's no physical. I don't believe in any of that. And so, I mean, everything in psychology happens in the brain. Uh, its brain is taking part in a higher system. Uh, so we have emergence. Oh, and the brain people will have trouble seeing free will because, you know, nerve cell firing, there's no no freedom there. But at higher levels of organization, there are more degrees of freedom. Uh, and so we evolved the capacity to, to, to capitalize on those. The people who believe in, the scientists who believe in free will and the ones who don't, you might think they'd have really different psychological theories about how behavior happens. They don't. They seem to have pretty much the same uh, belief. And the thing that gets me is they they both agree that the human system is radically different from anything else in nature. And basically, we evolved some mental system to control our behavior that can plan for the future or celebrate the past or coordinate with others, import abstract ideas uh, into the causation of behavior. Uh, all this has, has no precedent in the, the animal world. So evolution created this new, new set of mental powers. And the argument is just 
does it deserve to be called free will? Uh, and that's a semantic argument. To me, the scientific challenge is let's figure out how this new things work and why it's there and why it went so far beyond what our, our closest ape relatives have. And uh, I understand it work. In terms of whether I like the term or not, to me, the free is less of a problem than the will, because we don't really have a will in psychology. There's there's no such term. There's willpower, and you know, people talk about being forced to do something against their will, uh, but that's a metaphor. So I'd say we should use the term, maybe a bit ironically, but again, the problem is more the will. Uh, that some actions are freer than others uh, it seems indisputably true to me. I, we had a, an early study where we asked uh, um, a sample of 100 people to describe one experience from your life when you acted of your own free will and one experience when you acted not of your own free will. And nobody said, I've never had such an experience or I don't know what it means. Everybody could do that. I think that arguments get bogged down uh, in a couple misleading places, uh, one is there is there complete freedom? You know, to be to be free, you'd have to show that no causes applied. Well, I don't really think we need that. In, in science, almost everything's on a continuum, so some actions are freer than others, and we don't need the the complete freedom uh, case uh, in, in there. Just uh, what enables people to act more freely rather than less freely. Um, so there, there is a definitely a reality there. And if you want to quibble about whether the term free will, uh, if we were just discovering this today, we'd probably come up with a different term. But given that the term's been used for centuries, I'd say we might as well connect with that that scholarly tradition and, and that debate and continue using the term. And if you want to use it a bit ironically, that's fine. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I do have a follow-up for that because I think there is a psychological problem or a psychological question rather, which would be why do so many people want to believe they have free will and there must be many millions of people It could be culturally conditioned, but I, I even have some questions about that. So that's an empirical question. But why do so many people get very upset when they hear psychologists and other people claim that uh, there's no such thing as free will, and of course they interpret free will in their own terms when they hear that. Right. So what do you think about that? Well, the importance of free will, I think, originates at the level of society, not at the individual brain. Uh, we want people to be responsible for their actions, Moral responsibility is, is 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 an important component of society and something people care about. And when people act not of their own free will, we don't condemn them if they do bad things. So uh, it kind of implies to people if if we don't have free will, if we're just robots, we shouldn't we shouldn't hold anybody responsible for their actions. We can't uh, you know, even morality seems moral judgments are essentially. Should you have acted differently in that situation, which presupposes that you could have acted differently, right. uh, which is scientific definition of free will is the ability to act differently in the same situation. I see. Good. Um, that's so, that's uh, obviously something that is observable. So it's scientifically useful. Yes. Yeah. If you convince them that they don't have free will, in some studies, they become more likely to do immoral things. 
lying and cheating and so on. They also um, are less prone to punish people who do terrible things because, uh, again, I mean, the legal system embraces this to some degree. I, I think the Supreme Court commented that free will is an important part of America's legal system. Yeah. Uh, whether the person acted freely or not is a factor in how how to judge the person and how to sentence the person to punish the person if they did something wrong. Right, right. Yeah, uh, so it's very fundamental. I would say it's fundamental both philosophically, culturally, and legally. And obviously, if you disagree, please say so. And it is, uh, I haven't counted the citations on Google on the question, is there free will? Am I free? Uh, those kinds of questions. But my guess is that the citation rate has to be something enormous. Uh, and I believe that the reason is that people really do care about that. And obviously, that's an empirical claim. We could yes. ask, ask people about that, and it might actually be a good idea. And it's the compelling nature of this and the high popularity of this question, not so much the conviction, but rather the, the troubles that people seem to go through in thinking through free will or their conception of free will that uh, kind of piques my curiosity. Yes. Well, we, we talked about Freud a couple of minutes ago. Uh, one of his contributions to the culture was that you sometimes don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Right. It's easy to have sort of the naive impression that your conscious mind is completely in control of everything you do. Right. And I think, well, often it is. But Freud was certainly right. There are unconscious things and people might uh, do something for a reason they aren't aware. Uh, I know the habits researchers talk about habit slips, like you're driving to work and you intend to to stop somewhere else today to go to a different route to go by the drugstore. But oh, right. Caught up in the conversation and you just go <laughs> go past that. You go the way you always go. Yep. Um, so, so these show that sometimes the conscious mind doesn't really know what you're doing, uh, isn't isn't fully in charge. So that's a little bit unsettling. Uh, for these people to come along and say there's no free will at all, everything you do is pre-programmed, and, and indeed, uh, back in 1900, everything it was already inevitable. Everything you're going to do or say your whole life was already uh, uh, in the causal process and, and, and inevitable. That makes them think, well, am I living my life or am I just sort of going through the motions like a pre-programmed robot? So there's a big loss of of dignity uh, when you tell people they're not free to make, make their own choices or they're right. not really in control. Right. And that, I think, today is also driving the conscious AI movement, which I personally also disagree with. When you talk about the dark side of self-esteem, that's also really important in, in a very practical sense. And how would you characterize that? Well, I started off in psychology studying self-esteem. My undergraduate thesis, uh, yeah, I had to do a thesis at, uh, at my college. So I was early interested in self-esteem, and I would measure it and show things. So I was very excited about self-esteem. And I remember people started uh, questioning it and saying, well, it doesn't really predict as much as, as we thought. 
So I started looking into things and uh, taking more skeptical. I mean, there are real differences between people with high and low self-esteem and how they behave, but they're not nearly as uniform or as extensive as as we had thought for a while. I think there's a case of psychology going off half-cocked. And in a way, it was an honest mistake because self-esteem is correlated with lots of good outcomes. People with high self-esteem have less drug addiction and less unwanted pregnancy and better records in school and, and, and so on. But, you know, those are correlations. They weren't causal. When they started tracking people over time, self-esteem didn't predict anymore. It was the grades, the good grades came first and that led to higher self-esteem. But the self-esteem first did not lead to higher grades later on. So there was a strong movement, I remember in California especially, right. in the educational system to teach people to have more self-esteem. And I believe that what you're saying is that there's not a causal right. relationship when you do that. Right. Uh, yeah. I think we Americans, we're always looking for ways to help kids learn without having to do all that homework. I mean, look at math. You have to do all those problems. Wouldn't yeah, it be nice? why is it so hard? And so they thought, well, if we could just raise kids' self-esteem and make them think they're good at math, maybe they'll do better because right. there was the correlation. Right. Uh, only it doesn't really work. Uh, you really have to do the problems. Gee, that's uh, too bad. Uh, yeah, it's too bad. Uh, but I could see the appeal. And then to get into really the dark side... Because most effects of self-esteem, such as they are, are, are positive. Where well, I became skeptical, partly I was one of my projects was to write a book on evil. I was tackling yes. a series of big philosophical problems, and I'd heard that low self-esteem was a cause of violence and stuff. So by then, I'd been studying self-esteem, and I was a little skeptical. I, I believed what I'd heard, but I was anxious to see the literature. See, in the lab, what I got to know about people with low self-esteem is. They're unsure of themselves. They they doubt themselves. They don't want to call attention to themselves. This doesn't sound like someone who's going to start a fight. You know, the, the, the you know, as they think of the most aggressive, obnoxious person you know, is that person a low self-esteemer with with you know self-doubts and insecurity, or more commonly, does this person think they're better than everybody else, uh, and they don't like it if somebody questions them. Uh, so I started looking for the evidence, and the, the argument that low self-esteem contributed to aggression was repeated ever, everywhere, and they would cite somebody else, and I would go and look up that one, and they said it, but then they cited somebody else. But nobody had any data for it, and I couldn't find any original statement. I'm not sure where the idea really? got started. And, uh, and then when I was, again, researching for the book on evil, I read all kinds of things about these people who do bad things. And, oh, they were very high opinions of themselves. Uh, there's one study of uh, of rapists in prison. Uh, you know, they're in prison. And she said they described themselves as multi-talented super achievers. Really? Uh, <laughs> yes. Wow. Uh, so... They do think they're they're better than others. It's it's more like the narcissistic inflated self-esteem. Where I, I came to realize is people with high self-esteem, there's several different kinds. There's some people who are just, you know, pretty good at things and they know it. And so they're very comfortable with that. Uh, and those people are not very aggressive. Uh, there are also people who want to 
believe they're better than everybody else and who are invested in it. But it isn't really true. Uh, and so they're very nervous about it. And anybody questions them, they uh, oh. they they will lash out. Right, um, right. I read the gang fights and things like that, and it starts by insulting, and that somebody uh, disrespects you, and right. so you have to uh, have to fight for it. And uh, tyrants, so uh, aggressive people who take over countries, and I think they often think they're God's gift to the world. And so evidence started coming in that uh, well, the aggression doesn't come from insecurity or low self-esteem or thinking you're a bad person aggression comes from thinking you're better than everyone else and better probably than you really are and and then somebody questions that we, we started doing lab studies after that my, my friend brad bushman was an aggression researcher and he called and the, my sake review article on, on self-esteem came out and he said well you had a lot of evidence but you didn't have any lab studies uh let's do some and i said okay okay great and uh, so we measured self-esteem and narcissism and then looked at it. And, and you know, the way the measures, you know, do they exactly correspond to this? I mean, high self-esteem involves you know, thinking you're better than other people uh, in some cases. But some of the, the popular measures just ask, are you as good as anybody else? So they don't get at the superiority aspect. And it's the the feeling of superiority that seems to lead to aggression. But again, only if they're questioned. So... You get somebody who's a, a total narcissist or whatever in the lab. As long as you tell them they're great and what they're doing is the best thing you've read, you know, you get along great with, <laughs> with those people. Uh, but you tell them, no, your work is not very good. That's uh, This is really a lousy one. You know, then they get mad and they lash out much more than, than anyone else. So That's a really important finding. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and I started to get triggered by your finding, if we can use that language, because it struck me as so important, and of course, based on so much evidence. And I started to, uh, you know, think uh, grandiosely, you know, whether this applies to international violence. And and the baffling question, uh, which is probably totally irrelevant to this conversation, but I will ask it anyway, people like Vladimir Putin who invade countries for reasons that are not obvious to the rest of the world, mm -hmm. let's say it that way. <laughs> Does your hypothesis have any relevance for that kind of real-world question? Well, yes, I think so. I mean, I don't know Putin, and I haven't studied him, so I can't have a professional opinion about him. But it is definitely true when I was doing this research that Russia has a long history of feeling... We're a great country when we don't get the respect we deserve, that somehow Western Europe forged ahead by some sneaky whatever uh, in the Middle Ages or the early modern period, and they have all this fine stuff, and we don't get the respect. And so there's there's that uh, aggressive aspect. Uh, you know, it works in Western Europe, too, the, the Nazis. Uh, and there was another thing. I mean, the master race, that's not a low self-esteem slogan. Uh, that's where superior to everybody else. Uh, but they felt or they didn't get, they weren't treated like better than everybody else, especially uh, the, the, the settlement after World War One, which was very hard on Germany. So again, we'll show them, you know, that's the, uh, the aggressive thing. Thinking you're superior. Uh, and that you don't get uh, the respect that you're entitled to. 
America is very powerful, but I think we mostly feel we do get respect. <laughs> we think other people might think we're great, even though even if they don't. And so, America is probably the least aggressive of the uh, world's foremost powers uh, in a long time. Uh, but I think there isn't that chip on the shoulder from feeling that uh, everybody disrespects us and we have to conquer them to uh, earn our place at the top of the of the rankings. Right. You know, the relevance of all this to the headlines and the news is uh, rather stunning. And I just want to compliment you on that research because it has so many implications and assuming it's true and has lots of evidence, it is really worth uh, following up for obvious reasons. So I really appreciate that, and thank you very much. Uh, I think this is a natural uh, peak point for us to come to a conclusion. And again, Roy Baumeister, uh, I really appreciate your being guest on, uh, on, on consciousness, and also, of course, uh, for your lifetime of contributions to psychology. Well, thank you, Barney. That's, uh, that means a lot, especially coming from you. I uh, long admired your, uh, your work and contributions. So, uh, thanks. Great. Thank you. To show our appreciation, here's a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's latest book, On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com, and be sure to enter the word books, B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your VIP discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd also like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's website at bernardbars.com, and I'm going to spell that also, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S.com. And thank you for listening.